Nice to see everybody. If you have your Bibles, would you open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? I will be reading verses 10 to 15, but I will probably speak more of an introduction into 2 Corinthians, at least a mild introduction into 2 Corinthians, because if we don't know that, we won't know what Paul is saying here. So it's important to understand the context before we can understand the text. But I will start reading the verse 10, I will read the verse 15, and then we'll move on. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, that's the body of Christ, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known to God, and I hope is also known also to your conscience, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast on about outward appearances, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one man has died for all, therefore all have died. And if he died for all, that's Christ, those who live because of faith might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, like always, God, for the great insights and understanding that your word gives us, God. It's a lamp onto our feet, Father, God. It's spiritual manner. Uh, our souls need it. Every word of scripture is desperately needed by our souls. We need a full, thorough, and clear understanding of the scriptures, Father, God. And I pray that your Holy Spirit here is here today, God, illuminating our minds and helping me articulate the great truths that are in the Scriptures, Father God. To your glory we ask this, God, by your Spirit, in the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We've been speaking about the judgment seat of Christ. Paul speaks about it three specific times. This will be our third time speaking on this, and I will speak one more time next week on it. Uh... And what it means for a believer to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It sort of stirs up maybe some emotions, and we've been speaking about this. Several weeks ago we spoke about what it is not. A believer standing before the judgment seat of Christ is not about our moral failures and our sins at all. Not close, can't get close to it, has nothing to do with it. That is the cross's job, and Christ has sufficiently pay for every sin, it's gone, over, finished, see forgetfulness, it should stir up no fear in us at all. Every moral failure has done, past, present, and future. We spoke about how standing before the judgment seat of Christ is not about, and about the rewards that the Bible says we're going to receive, it's not about securing a better place in heaven where subjectively we are going to experience heaven a little better than someone else. As I shared last week, I sort of recanted to a certain degree on what I said a couple of weeks before and uh, believed that the best interpretation I saw of the rewards for Christians in their service to God would be something of a subjective kind, that when we go to heaven, everybody will experience the beauty and magnificence of Christ 
a little differently, a little, with a little of different intensity because of their service. When I read that many years ago, I was like, oh, that's good. And it always stayed in my heart, but I never searched out the matter until I started teaching on the text. And as I searched out the matter, I had to realize, you know, something that's just conceptually, there's something wrong with that position. We spoke about that last week. If you were not here last week, I encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. It says much about what Paul is saying and what we believe he's saying. I think it would be very encouraging to your heart. Conceptually, we can't add or diminish to Christ's glory and paying for redemption and what he's purchased for us. He didn't purchase my forgiveness. He, perfect, he purchased a perfect heaven. Are you with me? It, 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 he got that. I can't add to that by doing more. And I can't diminish by doing less. So we're called to work, we're called to love, we're called to labor. Yes, we're going to do that. And if we're honest, some of us, we're doing it at a great, sometimes in our life we're doing it greatly. And other times, you know, we don't feel like we're doing that great. So we believe that the rewards are the reward of actually Christ with his own lips, his own eyes, his own words. And that new name, when he speaks to us in that tender voice, well done. I believe that is, that's the reward that any Christian would want to hear. Amen. Just to look and that somehow we pleased God. Somehow we pleased God. And as we said, even, but God, what did I do? I only made a couple of phone calls. I only said hello to somebody. I only loved somebody. I, I, I prayed and fasted for somebody. They never even knew about it. But I, I heard they were going through a hard time. So I took it upon myself just to care for someone. I gave someone a drink of water. I visited someone in the hospital. I went to prison. You're telling me... I, for the least these I've done unto you. So we see that you know God can take a little and do a lot with it. So all Christians are called to do that. And I believe every true believer that as the Spirit of God does this for the Lord. I believe it's self-motivating and all Christians do it. I believe it's more an evaluation of our faithfulness to God and that's what we spoke about last week. Tonight I want to continue on this subject from another perspective that we find in this text, which Paul brings together in our text in the, tonight, and that's verses 10, 11, and 14. But I do have to give a mild introduction into the text. I might not get to the verses tonight, to be honest with you. I'm going to spend more time on the introduction. But I want to speak about the judgment seat of Christ, the fear of the Lord, and the love of Christ. It's found in verse 10, verse 11, and verse 14. Let me say it again. In just three verses of scripture, he speaks about the judgment seat of Christ. He speaks about the fear of the Lord. And he speaks about the love of Christ. Can we reconcile such language with the love of God? Does the love of Christ contradict the judgment seat of Christ? Does the love of Christ contradict even the fear of Christ? How how do you reconcile this? I mean, I have a hard time. I mean, I've got to stretch my, my understanding of Christ, my understanding of Paul. Paul's language is very, especially 2 Corinthians, is one of the hardest epistles in the New Testament to grasp. It's probably the hardest of Paul's to wrestle with. It's an emotional appeal. You'll see so much of the, rea- the humanity of the Apostle Paul in this letter. And we'll get into this as we go tonight. You'll find out a lot about Paul tonight. And it's, it's important for us to understand that because we'll never understand what Paul is talking about here unless we understand why he spoke it. We'll never will. If you were to read just that text at home, you'd have no idea what it means. You would have something called the fear of the Lord, and you'd have something called the judgment seat of Christ. If you're a young believer, that could scare you. It could scare you. 
So how do we reconcile these things, and can they be reconciled? And, you know, I'll give an illustration, and illustrations is a human's best attempt to try to drive home a spiritual truth. It's, It's very difficult. You know, the fear of God, the fear of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and the love of Christ. Well, I don't know about you, uh, I, I deeply loved my mother. I didn't fear too many men growing up. I'd go toe-to-toe with the bully, win, lose, or draw, made no difference. No one was going to push me around. But when my mother came after me with a slipper, <laughs> trust me, she caught my attention. There was no retaliation. I knew she was right. I knew I had to appear before the slipper of my mother. <laughs> A spatula, wherever she had. Am I the only one? All right. I had forks thrown at me. I had spoons thrown at me. On a human level, that's the fear of mommy. She was the disciplinary. She got my attention. And, but I knew she loved me the way Christ loved me. And I knew I had to appear before my mother more than once because she had to evaluate my life. Are you with me? In the spiritual sense, that's what's going on here. So we can reconcile judgment seat. We can reconcile the fear of the Lord with the love of Christ. It's easy. And we're going to go into that. Last week, to understand these truths, as I just said, Paul speaks about we must understand the reasons he wrote them and tied them together. And that's what I'm going to try to do. I'll just go through 1 Corinthians last week. Last week when Paul was talking about uh, God's going to evaluate everybody's works, whether they were genuine, and he, he compares it to wood, hay, or straw. That's disingenuine. That's, there's something missing. There's a selfish ambition attached to Christian ministry. He's speaking to our Christian teachers or anybody who's in the ministry. The principle applies to all Christians. But what's valuable, what's done doctrinally pure, and what's done out of a right motive is called silver, gold, and precious stones. And what God's going to do, he's going to evaluate what every minister has done. Is he trying to build a church, and as we said last week, on the wisdom of the age, because that's what Paul was addressing last year. People were trying to build a church, not on just the Christ and him crucified, not just on a foundation, a bloody mess that saves sinners, that sanctifies sinners, that you receive by faith and receive the Spirit of God and become temples of the Holy Spirit. What people were trying to do, they were getting cunning, they were getting crafty, they were getting innovative. Let's apply how people look, how people sound. And let's, let's start evaluating that way. Let's build up the church now, not by what Paul said. Even though Paul's appearance wasn't good, he didn't speak well, he wasn't eloquent like all these other people. But he laid a foundation, but let's really capitalize on it now. We'll polish it up now, and we'll look better. That's the wisdom of the world. And we, and we said how people do that today, 2,000 years later. They, they try to add by subtraction. They want to build up the church. And, and how do we build up the church? Well, let me see. I'll stop speaking about sin. I know that makes people uncomfortable, right? We'll get rid of that. Uh, we don't want to speak about judgment. That makes people more uncomfortable. Don't mention Satan. Throw him out. Uh, don't talk about hell. Let's, let's make this really contemporary, right? Let's make it friendly. So what happens, we, by subtracting doctrinal truth, we build up the church. That's hay, wood, and straw. That's going to be burned up. That's going to be burned up. 
Some other people subtract by addition. And what they do is they subtract by addition is, is they, 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 they do a disingenuine service to God's true people. When they start to add smoke and mirrors and, and try to make it, make it more friendly in another way. Like say Easter comes, instead of speaking on the resurrection, they'll, they'll bring Easter bunnies. In. And, and, and what, I, what I'm telling you, I know this firsthand. They'll bring Easter bunnies to run around and make everybody feel comfortable. They'll put a romper room in the back so the kids come. And if the kids come, that means who else comes? The parents. Let's get the parents in by getting to the kids. So then you advertise all this and then they all come. And then you pandy to them and you just give them what they want. But look, everybody's here and we're singing Jesus music, aren't we? So I guess God's in this place. But you do not get conformed into the image of Christ on that. We need truth, and only truth will set men free, and truth spoken in love, and that's the full counsel and the gospel of God, nothing left out. From heaven to hell, from suffering to the cross, to glory, to hardship, we speak on it all, and that's what conforms us into the image of Jesus. That was the wisdom. In a nutshell, that was last week's sermon. Look into it. Second Corinthians tonight is similar, but it has its differences. Even though Paul's writing to the same church, this church is a bit of a mess. All right? And it's not just a mess, it's actually in trouble. And at this point, what Paul is talking about, the, week, the, the first epistle in 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about how divisions have arisen within the church, not just worldly wisdom, but divisions. Someone's following Paul because they like Paul. There are other groups that don't like Paul, but they like Peter. And then there's another, but they like Apollos. He's the eloquent speaker. He's the trained orator. And they like him. And all these divisions are coming up. And so Paul, in the judgment seat in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what he's saying is all teachers will be evaluated on how they build the church. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking about a different group of people. We're going to find out who they are. These are false apostles. They're preaching a false Jesus. They have entered into the church, and what they're doing, they are elevating themselves at Paul's expense. They're elevating themselves, and how they're doing that, they're not talking about themselves, they're they're beating down Paul. And I want to give you some verses of scripture, and we're going to reconstruct what this letter is about, and follow how it leads to the judgment seat of Christ, the fear of the Lord, and the love of Christ. It all leads to Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians. Let's go to uh, chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, the false apostles, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter of Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You see, Paul's opponents were discrediting Paul, and they were calling him a false apostle, because they say that he had no calling. He took this upon himself, that the church in Jerusalem did not support him, 
He didn't have a letter of recommendation. As these four super apostles, they would come and say, we got a letter from James. we got a letter from other people from Jerusalem Church. And we're here, and we're going to teach you the, the true gospel. And all of a sudden, they started getting in by discrediting Paul. They started getting an ear in the church. And the division starts to run up. They're, they're questioning Paul's authenticity to preach. His genuine apostolic call. They got, they got this church to question, is Paul a true apostle? And you have to listen to Paul's wisdom and how he gets their attention on this. I'm going to comment on these verses later. But what he's saying, I don't need a letter. You're, you're our letter. Remember what you were. And guess what you are now? That's not because I bring a letter. I preach the gospel and it saved you. He goes on here in chapter 10, verse 10. <clears throat> you have to listen to the, the sarcasm. Paul says, For they say, my opponents, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. So now the Corinthians are going, yeah, you're, you know, you're right, Paul's not much to look at. You know, yeah, he did some miracles, and we got saved, and we received the Spirit of God. But you know something? Compared to everybody else in Athens... In Corinth, nah, he's not much. He's not much of a speaker. He, he, he doesn't use words well. He doesn't look good. You know, there is something wrong with Paul because they were so used with contemporary cultural wisdom about how it looks. Are you with me? That these false apostles exploited the culture in their hearts. Don't miss it. Just like false teachers today exploit greed in the heart and say, well, you can name it and claim it, you can get healthy, you can get rich. That's exploiting greed. That's what these false apostles did. They were using the culture that was still left in the Corinthians' heart and exploiting it. And, see, and they're saying, no, yeah, Paul doesn't look like much. He has no letter. He doesn't speak well. He doesn't look well. He's unkempt. Who is this guy? Surely God wouldn't use a loser like this. He goes on in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 6. Even if I am unskilled in speaking like my opponents claim, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way I've made this plain to you in all things. He's accused of stealing. Listen to this in, 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 the, in the same chapter, the next verse. He goes on to say, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself? So that you might not be exalted, so that you might not be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. Do you know what the, insinua the insinuation was? This is what it was. The false apostles say, how can you trust this guy? He doesn't charge you. He takes no offering. For 16 months he was here and he never asked for a nickel. Think of the reasoning. They were like, yeah, you know. What's he got up his sleeve? <laughs> well, there is something up his sleeve. Because, what do I say in that? Because he was, taking, he was taking a love offering. Do you remember? For the believers in Jerusalem that were suffering under a famine. And what they were saying, this is why he didn't take the money. He's going to take it all at once and never come back. That's what they were doing. They were exploiting his ability, his willingness to humble himself and work with his own hands and support himself at the expense of them, just for their souls. Are you with me? Listen to the same chapter, the 22nd verse. They attack his pedigree. 
or is he, he attacks them. Listen to this in verse 22. Are these false apostles, are they Hebrews? Well, guess what? So am I. Do they talk about being an Israelite? Well, so am I. Do they speak about being the offspring of Abraham? Well, so I am. I just don't go brag about it. A matter of fact, furthermore, it's all rubbish now. What matters is to know Christ. He's the only true Jew and his salvation and his resurrection. I don't preach the Judaism. I don't preach about the temple. I don't preach about Moses. I don't preach about Aaron. I don't preach about the Sabbath. I don't preach about the law. I bring you Christ and him crucified and that is it. What they were saying is that Paul, if he's a true Jewish apostle, he... He would speak about Moses. He would speak about Judaism. He would speak about circumcision. He would speak about the festivals. He would speak about the Sabbaths. But all he speaks about is Jesus. They accused him of being crazy. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.13. We just read it. For if we are besides ourselves, in the Greek it means out of our mind. He says it's for your sake. It's for God's glory. If we are in our right mind, it's for your sake. What does he mean by that? Well, I'll speak about it later on. But what he's saying, he was being accused of just being a madman. This is how they got in, infiltrated their hearts, and started to turn them away from Paul. Now you say, well, why is that important? Well, I want to understand what it means to stand be- as a believer to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I want to know the fear of the Lord. It means the terror of the Lord. I want to know that. And I want to know how it's reconciled with the love of Christ. And for me to understand that, I have to understand all this. And why Paul wrote this. Paul simply sums up these men in this verse. Same chapter, 13th verse. As this. For such men are false apostles. Is that up there? I want that up there. Can you get that, John? 11.13. Oh, good. For such men are false apostles. This is what Paul, if you're reading, it's a rhetoric. He's going toe-to-toe with these men. For such men are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So that's what Paul is going against. That's why he's writing. In Paul's defense, we got chapter 2, verse 17. I'll give John a moment to get that up there. In Paul's defense, he says, For we are not like so many, he could say the false apostles, peddlers of the word of God, but are men of sincerity as commissioned by God. In the sight of God we speak in Christ. But we have renounced this, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, I want you to follow along. This is Paul's defense. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Do you know what that means? What he's saying, he goes, I'm not like the apostles. They tamper with God's word. They're building up Moses and and the whole Hebrew religion again. It's about Jesus now. I wouldn't tamper with God's word. The Old Testament is about Jesus Christ and him alone. I will not tamper with God's word to draw you after me. That's what the false apostles were doing. He goes like this. 
but by an open statement of the truth. Do you know what that means in Pauline theology? The truth? The gospel. That's what it means. It's not just a general truth. It is the truth. By an open statement that Jesus Christ in him alone is the truth, the life, and the way. With no other motive than your salvation and your sanctification. With no other motive than your, your good intentions in my heart. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And he can prove it. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. I want you to follow along. Listen to Paul. He says this, you, Corinthians, are our testimony. Remember what you were before I came to you. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He's saying, don't forget, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's the truth. That's the gospel. He didn't peddle the word. He preached the truth. And these men got saved. These men and women got saved from every sinful background. To think that the false apostles were able to start winning their hearts over from Paul is beyond me. Don't ever put it past Satan. Don't ever put it past Satan to defile and beguile our minds from the truth. He has power to persuade, and we have to be careful. So then, Paul can say this as we already read. You yourselves are the letter of our recommendation. I don't need a letter. I preached. You got saved. But your lives have changed. Do I need a letter now like these false apostles do? Take a look at your life. Look at your mother. Look at your brother. Look at your son. Look what, look what the Spirit of God has done. I don't preach the law. I don't preach Moses. I don't need to. I preach Christ and I'm crucified. And you're saved and the Spirit setting you free. That's my recommendation. That's, that's how I commend myself. That's how God shows His hand is on my life. I don't need a letter. I preach and people get saved. Do you follow me? It's important for us to understand that. Even if we don't go into chapter 5 and talk about the judgment seat, even if we don't talk about the fear of the Lord, even if we don't talk about the love of Christ that constrains us, even if we don't, that's good news. We need to understand this if we're ever going to be able to wrestle with the verses we read tonight. It's all these inner dynamics that drives Paul's thoughts. His passions on the subject of the judgment seat and the fear of the Lord. This is why he's writing it. It's because all this stuff is going on. These false apostles are are capturing the hearts of his people. They're his children. They have many teachers, but he says, you only have one father. I did that. I came and preached to you with no money. My hand wasn't out. I labored. I slaved. I sweated. Just so you could be saved. This is what's driving me. Let me sum it up. 
all teachers will stand before Christ on that day and will separate the good from the evil. It's interesting as I read the commentaries on this that I find little agreement that when it comes to the, the, the three times Paul talks about the judgment seat, Romans chapter 14, I, I encourage everyone, if you're here today, raise your hand if you're here. That's only half of the crowd. Okay. Read Romans 14 and, 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 and go home and, and study it for the week, okay? Get your commentaries out, read it, get your translations out, pray over it. Let it challenge you, because we're going to speak about that next week. In, in Romans chapter 14, when he speaks about the judgment seat, this is what he's speaking about. He's talking about believers in their heart issues with each other. Scary. Are you ready? Put your seatbelt on next week. God's coming after us. Last week in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about how ministers minister. What's their motive? What's their ambition? And what's their doctrine? It's either silver, gold, or precious stones, or whatever uh, wrong doctrinally, whatever wrong through their motives and ambitions, that's wood, hay, and straw that's going to be burned up. Okay? Here, he's speaking about false teachers and true teachers. In 1 Corinthians, he speaks about Whatever a man builds on, whether it's precious or non-precious, if it's precious, it remains, right? If it's not, it gets burned up. But he himself is what? He himself is saved. He's not saying that here. And here, he'll separate the good and the evil. Those which were good, Jesus says, can a good tree produce? Can a bad tree produce? No. It looks like, at least in my humble estimation, what Paul is talking about, on that day, Christ will separate the true apostles from the false apostles, the true teachers from the false teachers. This is not about hay, wood, and straw versus the pure things of gold and silver. These are people who are preaching a different gospel. And for 2,000 years, there are men and women who are preaching a false Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about. Does it sound familiar? Do you remember what Jesus said? When they said to Jesus, but we cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. And what did he tell them? I never knew you. I know you were, you were doing a lot in the kingdom of God, but I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That's what's going on. That's how I see it. Next week, we'll speak about how it applies to believers in their love relationship with one another. Whew. Get ready. Okay. This is what drives Paul. Okay. As I just spoke about, Romans 14 was about Christian charity towards one another. Because of this, Paul calls this knowing the fear of the Lord. Because Paul knows... 
he has to stand before God and give an account of how he preached the truth of the gospel and he did not peddle it like other people. Understand something. It is beyond my imagination how anybody can get up and alter the truth of God's word. They have no idea of what's going to happen on that day. It would be better never to have been born than to stand before God and have to give an account of altering the word of God or adding to it by subtracting to it. To stand there before Christ. I can't believe the things I hear. Paul calls them peddlers of the word of God. He's not talking about a Christian whose theology is a little off than another Christian. That's not what this is about. This is about the false apostles elevating Moses above Christ. Elevating the law above grace. Adding something to it. What this is called, this is called, oh yeah, Jesus. You know what that is? I'll give you an example. Walking down Shore Road the other day, I don't know about you, but I've been running to a lot of witnesses of Jehovah. they got their little stands up and everywhere. And uh, I like to engage them. If i got the time, I'll go eyeball to eyeball with them as lovingly as I can. So this day, I wanted to hear, I was hoping they'd catch my eye, you know. So she goes, oh, can I interest in you? I said, so I asked her a couple of simple questions, like, oh, what are you doing? She goes, well, do you want to know how to get to heaven? I said, yeah, I like something. Yeah, I like to know how to get to heaven. <laughs> so she goes, I said, what's the Bible about? Well, she goes, you know, the new heaven and the new earth. And I said, oh, how do you get there? Well, she goes, well, we want to answer why there's so much crime and corruption and murder in the world. And, and then why there's so many criminals in the world. I said, oh, that's nice. And I said, uh, I said, she goes, why don't you read this? And she gave me some text of scripture. And, and I'm listening, and I'm listening. I'm just sort of going over my head. And, and I waited about seven, eight, nine minutes. Never mentioned Christ. So then I said this. I said, Jesus teaches me that I must be, oh yeah, we believe too, we're Christians. That's, oh yeah, we believe theology. (laughs) Oh, by the way, we believe in Jesus. That's what these false apostles were doing. They would come and preach circumcision. They would preach the Sabbath. They would preach uh, Jerusalem. They would preach the high priesthood. They were into, into the temple. That's why Paul's constantly telling them, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit now. They were into all this appearance. And then they would say, what about, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus too. They throw that in there. They don't believe in Jesus. That's why Paul calls them false apostles. They can say they're Christian. They can say, oh yeah, we believe Jesus too. But that's not what they're teaching. They're teaching something contrary to Jesus only. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing here. He knows the fear of the Lord. Of standing before Christ. That's why he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that as a teacher and a Christian, I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Because of this awesome accountability, this awesome responsibility, I know i got to stand before Christ. I can't peddle a word, but i got to preach and persuade all men 
to be reconciled to God. I have no other ambition that sinners would be reconciled to God. That is it. We cannot start adding things to it. When we start adding things to it, the judgment gets less and less. But there's no fear of God. He talks about giving the church a reason to boast in him in in, in verse 12. And why is he giving the, the church a reason to boast in him? And he's given this church that was founded by him, he's the father, the courage and the reasoning to confront Paul's opponents that are lying about him. By looking at the heart and not the appearance, which is what changed these former pagans into the church of God at Corinth. He had to remind them, don't be ashamed of me. I might not look like much. I might not sound like much. But understand something, God used me much to change your life. Go toe-to-toe with those false apostles that are lying about me. Show them that you are our letter of recommendation. You show them that you are our letter written, written, read by all men. You show them what the Spirit of God has done. Remind them that before I came, I was caught deep in sin and transgressions. Tell them what you were before I preached the gospel. Remind them of how I used to live. That's what Paul was telling. So when they come and say, you know, Paul this, Paul that, you can say, hey, if it wasn't for Paul and the message he preached, I'd still be in homosexuality. I'd still be a drunkard. I'd still be a swindler. I'd still be a liar. I'd still be a thief. I'd still be a murderer. No, no, no. You got it wrong. Paul is the apostle. Verse 13, as we spoke about already, they were saying he's out of his mind. You know why they were saying he's out of his mind? Because he was consumed with Jesus Christ. If I'm out of my mind, it's for God's glory. What they were saying, that he, what he's saying, he's, he's refuting what they're saying. I'm out of my mind? Oh, because I don't talk about Moses anymore? Because I don't talk about the law anymore. Because I don't talk about the Sabbath anymore. I don't speak about festivals anymore. I don't want to put you under the yoke of, of circumcision. And I don't want to take your money. So I'm out of my mind because all I do is talk about. Jesus. All I speak about. And how he did what on the cross for me. Oh, so that's out of my mind? Well, let me be out of my mind for God. Because if that's the case, I'm in my right mind for you. Because that's all you need to hear. You don't need to hear about Moses. You don't need to hear about Abraham. You don't need to hear about the Sabbath. You don't need to hear about the temple. You don't need to hear about festivals. What you need as your dead in sin and transgressions, you need the new covenant. And that's what I preached. So in that case, I'm in my right mind. So if you think I'm out of my mind for God, in the long run, you're going to get saved. Being consumed with Jesus actually puts us in the right mind. If we're going to be a minister of the gospel, we need to be consumed with Christ. We need to digest Christ. We need to see the culture trying to infiltrate the church to steal Christ. 
and preaching of the gospel. That's work. Paul goes on and we'll close with these words. What he's saying, he's saying, listen, I don't peddle the word of God. I don't mind standing before the judgment seat of Christ. I have a proper fear of the Lord, and this is why. The love of Christ controls me. Another translation says, the love of Christ constrains me. Another translation says, the love of Christ impels me. Another translation says, the love of Christ overwhelms me. What he sings, the only desire I have is to preach Christ and satisfy him. To be pleasing to Christ. I've considered this. My whole life, my whole testimony, my whole ministry is set on this. I considered it. I contemplated it. My whole life's work is based on this one principle. One man died that we all could live. So now, if he died that I can live, all those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died and rose again. It's the only thing that motivates me whatsoever consumed with Christ if you want to accuse me Paul saying of being consumed with Christ and out of my mind go ahead because you're right if it's a curse let God figure it out if I'm mad I'll leave it up to God I'll leave it up to your conscience but that is the driving motive and focus of my life Driven by the love of Christ. I'm overwhelmed, Paul saying, that God the Son would die for me. How can I alter and peddle the word of God? How can I bring any other ambition? How can I come here and want your money? He says in Acts, I covet no man's silver. I covet no man's gold. I covet no man's clothing. How, how, how can Christ die for me? How can I exploit and capitalize and merchandise the gospel people are going to stand before God one day and give an account how can I preach another gospel you see to understand this and to preach this you have to live it a false preacher could never preach this because it's got to live in you has to live in you They will avoid this text like anything else. The Spirit of God won't allow someone to preach it. It has to be in you. This is the love that motivates. This is the kind of love that could be seen in a minister's life, in another Christian's life. You can hear it in someone's word. You can see it in someone's actions. It could be modeled, used to motivate the most hardest heart. Why? Because we know that love is patient and love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable, nor is it resentful. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love, listen, seeks the benefit of others at the expense of oneself. And Paul proved it to this second, this, this Corinthian church. These false apostles could not hold a candle to the character of Paul. And Paul says, I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they sound like. 
Look at my life. I appeal to your conscience. No one speaks about the conscience more than Paul. 29 times in the New Testament, 22 times all by Paul. He speaks about the conscience. So when he appeals to their conscience, he's not saying, I feel this. An appeal 2,000 years ago is not like an appeal today. If a politician says, I promise you. Did you ever hear that? Come on. How a politician can say, I promise, is out of my mind. But they're out of their mind. It's been so abused. Well, Paul is saying, I appeal to your conscience because I was there for a year and a half and I lived it. I appeal to you how I lived amongst you. How I labored. How I gave you the truth without charge. You saw my character. You saw my conduct. You heard my doctrine. You saw that my life matched my preaching. I appeal to your conscience on what you saw in my life. So as we go through this and we can see that I spent maybe some time on teaching the difference between Paul's ambitions and desires to please God and do everything out of constraining love of Christ against the false apostles that were accusing him. That is the context that Paul talks about. Judgment, fear, and love. As I move just quickly into some application here. This text is not about the judgment seat of Christ. But Brian, you just read that, and you just preached on it. I want to ask you this. Can you possibly start living a better life because of the judgment seat of Christ? Commentators are saying this, God, Paul's using this to motivate. I don't think it works. I don't think it works. I think... The judgment seat of Christ goes to show us, do we really understand the cross or not? If I have a fear of the judgment seat of Christ, that means because I have not contemplated and considered the cross of Jesus Christ. If I have, if I have some kind of fear and apprehension of standing before God because of my heart and my motives, that means, of course, I didn't contemplate the cross good enough to change my life. If I'm lacking the love and the joy and, 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 the, and the zeal to serve God in the church and in the world, if I'm lacking that, it's not because of the judgment seat. It's because I haven't evaluated the cross. That's not going to change me. It's the cross that changes us. So if we're here today and we're like, the thought of us standing before Christ is, Understand, go back to the cross. That's where the mercy comes from. That's where the grace comes from. If, if there's anything in me that says the, the judgment seat, if I had to stand before Christ now to give an evaluation of my life, it hasn't been that great, then maybe I misunderstood the cross. That's the answer. That's the answer. More to be spoken about next week. Romans 14. Father, we thank you for the word. God just... God, prepare our hearts to meet you on that day by spending a life of contemplation on the cross. That's the only thing that can prepare us to stand before you that day as we contemplate that you died for all, that all would live, 
and that we should no longer live for ourselves, but live for you who died and rose again. That's the answer to Paul. That's the answer for us. Having considered, contemplated, reflected, and meditated on the awesome nature that Christ would die for me, a sinner. If that doesn't change us, a thousand judgment seats would never change us. Jesus.